Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the year 535 CE, the islands of Indonesia were still largely cut off from the rest of the world. Those who populated the beaches in this era were industrious people who labored away on rice farms or on fishing boats. Among many gods and goddesses, they worshipped Devi Sri, the goddess of rice. She provided the people with their main source of nourishment. But there was another god in the islands, though it had been sleeping for millions of years. It sat beneath the earth, watching with disinterest as the little islanders went about their little lives. For reasons unknown, the god then awoke, vomiting and releasing a 30-mile-high cloud of rock, fire, and ash. The blast was a hundred million times more powerful than the man-made bomb that would destroy Hiroshima over a thousand years later. Inhabitants of the island scarcely had time to flee as tsunamis washed their villages into the sea. Those who did make it to the hills couldn't run fast enough to avoid being burned by clouds of smoke. The god let out one last fiery belch. Then it exploded, devastating the remaining countryside and leaving a crater in its wake. There, amidst the pumice and bodies, a new god began to form, the descendant of the old one. Its name would become infamous, synonymous with death and creation. It was not the Hindu Shiva or the Shinto Izanami. No, its name was Krakatoa. And over a thousand years later, in 1883, it would prove far deadlier than its father. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Bill. Every Monday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. 
From the first recorded earthquake in ancient China in 1600 BCE to Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans in 2005, natural disasters have plagued mankind for the entirety of our existence. Learning about these events is humbling, but it also demystifies what used to seem like the wrath of the gods. Tectonic plates crashing together, ocean water being sucked into a vortex, massive columns of air twisting into a funnel. We now know what makes these disasters tick, but they remain just as deadly. The following phenomena all fall under the category of natural disasters. Earthquakes, landslides and mudslides, volcanoes, extreme heat, extreme winds, lightning, wildfires, floods, drought, tornadoes, winter weather, hurricanes, and tsunamis. Each of these has the ability to not only kill, but to wipe out entire civilizations. When they strike, they remind us that despite being the dominant life form on the Earth, we are nothing compared to the geological and atmospheric forces of the planet. This is our first of two episodes on Krakatoa, also known as Krakatau, a volcano that erupted in 1883, killing thousands and destroying civilization in the Sunda Strait the strip of ocean between western Java and southern Sumatra. The impacts of the volcano were felt throughout the world, and today it is still considered one of the deadliest natural disasters in history. In today's episode, we'll follow the volcano's geological development over a thousand years, as well as the development of civilization along the Sunda Strait. We'll then meet the inhabitants of the strait circa 1883 and stay with them as they experience the beginning of the eruption. Next episode, we'll cover the bulk of the eruption as it devastates Java and Sumatra. We'll explore how it made an impact worldwide, then question whether such an eruption is possible today. According to the Global Volcano Network, as of July 2019, there are 50 erupting volcanoes on the planet. This makes them a rare breed when compared to natural disasters such as a tornado or snowstorm. But once a volcano does erupt, it can have global consequences. Krakatoa, though not the deadliest volcano in history, displayed some of the most dread-inspiring natural phenomena. Its constant eruptions generated tsunamis every hour. The volcano's ash plume caused pumice to rain from the sky for miles. Magma seeping from the ocean floor turned the sea to acid. This is to say nothing of Krakatoa's most stunning display, its final implosion that led to the loudest sound in recorded history heard throughout the world. More than any other volcano, Krakatoa reminds us that these fiery behemoths are not to be underestimated. They are capable of destroying entire civilizations in the blink of an eye, and their effects spread across the globe. In May 1883, 
Dutch colonists continued to exploit the Sunda Strait as they had for 200 years. In the middle of the strait, surrounded by water, the volcano slept. It had grown into a sizable island, measuring about six miles across, with its highest peak reaching almost 3,000 feet into the air. Locals incorrectly assumed it was actually three volcanoes, Perbuatan, Danan, and Rakata. There were three funnels on the island, but in order to actually be considered as three separate volcanoes, they would have to each be fed by their own magma chamber. This was not the case. One magma chamber fed all three funnels. They were one volcano, not three. One massive killer. The large island of Java was located about 50 miles to the east. It contained the Fourth Point Lighthouse on its western shore, as well as the Dutch hub of Batavia in its central region. The even larger island of Sumatra lied 50 miles to the north of Krakatoa. Several Dutch colonies dotted its shores, including Katimbong, home of Johanna and Willem Beierink. May 15, 1883, Johanna and her husband Willem sat in their mansion in Katimbang, Sumatra, eyeing each other nervously as the latest tremor rocked their home. Willem was the Dutch controller for the colony, essentially the head accountant for the local economy. It was a demanding job that had long since outgrown the simple description of accountant and come to include more general island management responsibilities. Tremors had become commonplace in the area throughout May 1883. It was at least enough for Willem and Johanna to write a telegram to be sent to their supervisor. Something should be done, they thought. But what? They weren't sure. They had two young children and a baby on the way, and their parental instincts were kicking in. Not strongly enough, it would turn out. It took them five days to work up the courage to send the telegram. By that time, May 20th, 1883, there was much more obvious cause for alarm. The volcano, Krakatoa, had silently blown its top and was now spewing a 36,000-foot cloud of ash, lava, and pumice into the air. This resembles a Strombolian-type eruption, in which a volcano releases gas into the air, but not much lava. It is often caused by pockets of ocean water seeping into the volcano's magma stream and exploding. The volcano was becoming unstable. If seawater was being heated inside of it, then that meant the water-covered tectonic plate it sat on was moving down into the crust plate next to it. This process is known as subduction. Tectonic plates are massive pieces of the Earth's crust that constantly move and crash into one another, generating earthquakes and volcanoes. As water was sucked down toward the Earth's core, it was superheated and traveled as magma back toward the Earth's surface. This filled the volcano's magma chamber and made it fit to burst. Krakatoa was merely warming up. This was a fireworks display before the main event, and it cruelly lured the Dutch colonizers and the locals into believing that this was the worst the volcano had to offer. In May 1883, 
Only Johanna and Willem Beierink seemed to be taking the situation seriously. On May 21st, Willem met with local fishermen who claimed that the beach they had been fishing on literally exploded. The sandbank split apart with black smoke and lava spewing forth. He and the other fishermen barely escaped with their lives. Johanna was skeptical, finding their story to be too grandiose to believe. But then the Bayerinks received a response to their telegram. The Dutch government wanted Willem to personally investigate the volcano. This was a nerve-wracking assignment. Who knew what could happen to someone who stepped foot on the volcano? Nevertheless, Willem hired a local guide and took a small boat across the strait. As they approached, the island was obscured by thick smoke. Willem watched as the water beneath the boat gradually turned from its natural blue color to a shade of muddy gray. Soon, the lapping waves grew heavy with ash and stones. Willem and his guide gagged as their lungs were filled with poisonous gas. Peering through the thick smoke, they could just barely make out the volcano, its slopes as empty and gray as the water surrounding it. Like the fable of the frog in a pot of boiling water, the people of Katimbong and Batavia, the main colony in Java, were being slowly cooked alive, unaware of the increasing temperatures beneath their feet. After his boat trip to the waters around Krakatoa, Willem Beierink turned back from the island, apparently not making landfall. And by May 27, 1883, he was relieved that the volcano seemed to have calmed. There was no longer any significant plume of smoke rising from the spires. The volcano's continued tranquility over the next several weeks led many to believe that there was no further danger. Either that, or they became accustomed to Krakatoa's peculiarities. Fishermen accepted the gaseous and boiling water surrounding the island and learned to cast their nets elsewhere. And the citizens in the colonies became less and less afraid of the occasional tremor that shook their homes. According to research done by the History Channel, a woman in nearby Batavia was annoyed that the earthquakes interrupted the Bach concerts at Town Hall. Author Simon Winchester writes that there are very few reports of the volcano from June and July 1883. All that remains are some vague references to smoke emanating from the island. It was clear that something was brewing beneath the volcano, but the colonists and locals could be forgiven for failing to imagine the magnitude of what was soon to take place. Perhaps the barrier of water separating the island from the colonies gave people a false sense of security. Perhaps the greed of the Dutch led them to ignore the problem, and fear of the colonizers prevented the islanders from fleeing. But Krakatoa was a hulking, unfeeling thing. And as the summer reached its end, in August 1883, it prepared to unleash an apocalypse on the Sunda Strait. Next, we'll uncover the secret history of Krakatoa, including the possibility that its predecessor triggered 
the Dark Ages. Now, back to the story. In May of 1883, the islands of Sumatra and Java in modern-day Indonesia remained in the grip of Dutch forces, as they had for nearly 300 years. Though the Dutch were profiting off the land and its people, they were in for a rude awakening. In the middle of the Sunda Strait, 100 miles away from the nearest port, sat Krakatoa, a volcano that had been brewing for over a millennium. It had erupted 200 years earlier, but not since. And the worst eruption, the one that had destroyed the original volcano over a thousand years before, was lost to history. If the islanders and colonists had known about that terrible disaster, they might have behaved differently. Centuries earlier, the 535 CE volcanic eruption echoed throughout the Earth. Some modern scientists, such as Ken Willetts of the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, believe it was the cause of the great migration of rats that spread disease throughout Asia and Europe. Others claim that as the earth cooled and crops died, the resulting famine hastened the fall of the mighty Roman Empire. No one knows for sure, because the history of that period is notoriously sparse. This is a chief characteristic of the time known as the Dark Ages. Disease, hunger, and war meant that there was little time to record the experiences of mankind. Evidence of the great volcanic eruption was instead left in ice and fossilized plant life to be discovered millennia later. In the year 2000, Willetts published a study on the 535 CE eruption. His findings uncovered a secret history that shocked the world. It began with the study of Antarctic ice cores and London tree rings from that period. The ice cores showed a large global sulfuric acid spike in the atmosphere in 535 CE. Similarly, tree rings from the time presented abnormalities that suggest a global climate event. Willetts was blown away. Even more chilling, sources from ancient England, Rome, Turkey, China, and Japan all reference apocalyptic weather changes at this time. And in Asia, these reports are prefaced with mention of a loud bang from across the sea. Synthesizing this information, well, let's realize that in order to have such an impact, the volcanic eruption must have been massive. He also found ancient Javanese writings, which suggest that this eruption not only changed global temperatures, but created the Sunda Strait. Before the eruption of this proto-Krakatoa, the two islands of Java and Sumatra may have been one. Tarumanagara, the island kingdom of the proto-Krakatoa era, was reduced to dust. All that remains are inscriptions referring to a lost king, Pornavarman. Whatever Pornavarman's accomplishments, they did not impress the volcano. An entirely new landscape had been created. The kingdoms of previous centuries were gone, and in their place, the survivors had to rebuild new empires. This geography would play a significant role in coming events. Sumatra to the north, Java to the east, and Krakatoa in between them, surrounded by ocean. 
Against this backdrop, the baby god Krakatoa continued to grow, nourished by a constant flow of magma from the Earth's core. It was preparing for a far deadlier explosion than the one that had come before. Lava exploded through the waves of the Sunda Strait, cooling and building on itself until a new island and a new volcano was formed. It's likely that this started almost immediately after the Proto-Krakatoa explosion. In order to reach the size recorded in later centuries, the volcano must have begun its growth in the 6th century. The baby god grew at a rate of 12 feet or more a year. Soon, it was a baby no longer. By the year 1000, the baby god had become a mountain, one that was covered in lush forests and inhabited by birds, monkeys, and all manner of animals. The most significant human events in the region took place on Java, though further to the east so as to avoid the volcano's wrath. King Dharmawangsa was the most famous ruler in the region around 1000 CE. He was known for promoting Hinduism through the first widely available translations of the Bhagavad Gita in the area. But to the northwest, the Sumatran kingdom of Malacca was arguably more prosperous. Its trade network spanned the globe, and the sultans of the island, largely converts to Islam, were seen as culturally superior to other island rulers. This diversity of kingdoms among the islanders led to a rich culture and extraordinary wealth. However, it also led to a fractured political structure and no strong central military. This opened the region up to a new threat, European colonizers. By the early 1600s, the Dutch Empire had complete control over the Sunda Strait. In 1611, it was a Dutch sailor that finally gave the caldera its name. There is debate as to why he chose the name Krakatoa. Some say it was a variation on a local word. Others say he was paying tribute to the cacophonous sound of the birds and monkeys that populated the island. Regardless, this speaks to the arrogance of the Dutch. They moved into this foreign land, taking what they wanted and renaming the landscape as if they were the first to discover it. They were also brutally efficient. They instructed the islanders as to what crops to grow on their own lands, focusing on cloves, nutmeg, and pepper. The majority of these spices were sent back to Europe, where the Dutch made a fortune. Meanwhile, the indigenous people starved. They could not grow their own sustenance, as they were accustomed to, and the Dutch were taking a piece of everything they did grow. It's tempting to view what happened in the coming centuries as divine retribution for what the Dutch had done to the people of the region. However, Krakatoa's fury would cost the islanders just as much, if not more, than what it would cost the Dutch. The prologue to the disaster began in 1680, when the island had its first significant eruption in a thousand years. The Dutch and the islanders alike watched from the shores as a cloud of lava, pumice, and ash raced down the slopes of Krakatoa. It wiped out all plants and animals on the island, but it took no human lives. 
Many of the Javans and Sumatrans that populated the area believed in Orang Alija, the spirit of the mountain. Author Simon Winchester found that some of the locals even believed that Orang Alija was speaking out against the Dutch colonizers with the 1680 explosion. The Dutch attempted to explain the volcanic eruption away through science. The local scientific experts were expected to make an informed decision as to the volcano's dangers and then advise the home country as to what should be done. However, they were still limited in resources and knowledge. Science of the time was largely about observing with the senses. How did animals move and behave? What path did the stars take across the night sky? So to answer the question of, is this volcano dangerous, the 17th century scientists simply looked at the volcano and compared it to others in the region. Though this had been a bigger than normal explosion, they saw no remaining plume and felt no significant tremors. With no additional volcanic symptoms, they assumed there was no need for alarm. And this was likely a conclusion that the Dutch trading authority preferred. They would not cease their enormously profitable operations for anything less than a full-scale disaster. The civilized Europeans did not bow down before nature. They tamed it. The colonies would continue to grow. More and more people moved into, visited, or were born in the area. What these early scientists and officials failed to understand was that, as we've discussed, Krakatoa sat on the boundary between two tectonic plates. Indeed, in the late 1600s, the very concept of tectonic plates was centuries away from being understood. The two plates in question were, and are, the Eurasian plate and the Australian plate. The Eurasian plate sits beneath all of Europe and most of Asia, the most massive of all the tectonic plates. The Australian plate, of course, encompasses Australia, but it also sits beneath most of the Indian Ocean. These two titans are locked in an eternal battle, a battle that was about to spill out onto the people of Sumatra and Java. Pressure increased as the bulky volcano trapped the magma in the caldera beneath its funnels. The 1680 eruption was likely a quick release of some of this magma before the substance congealed inside the volcano and trapped additional magma underneath. Far beneath the earth, the pressure increased, but the scientists had no way of knowing. All would soon learn that the science and engineering of any civilization is no match for the power of the very Earth itself. 200 years later, in May 1883, the keeper of the Fourth Point Lighthouse witnessed an especially ominous geographical phenomenon. Located on the western shore of Java, overlooking Krakatoa, he felt the lighthouse shake, then watched as out in the strait, the waves just suddenly stopped. For a few seconds, the ocean went flat. No one knew what to make of it. 
but over a century later, experts interviewed by National Geographic suggested that the lighthouse keeper had witnessed the introduction of magma from the ocean floor. The caldera beneath Krakatoa was beginning to burst, and as magma forced its way from the Earth's crust and into the ocean, it shook the ground and momentarily disrupted the tides. Magma seeping up from the ocean floor was the first sign that hundreds of years of volcanic congestion was about to give way. The various eruptions beneath the water and on certain beaches were not enough to release the enormous pressure that was now barely contained beneath Krakatoa. Aged to maturity, the volcano god was ready to exact its fury over the islands and prove that it was just as fierce as its father of a thousand years ago, or as any other natural wonder on the face of the planet. On the afternoon of August 26, 1883, Krakatoa was about to erupt. Next, we'll follow the citizens of Sumatra and Java as they experience the first of several eruptions from Krakatoa. Now, back to the story. The morning of Sunday, August 26, 1883, the citizens of Sumatra and Java awoke to a stormy sky and turbulent waves. 100 miles across the water in the Sunda Strait, their old neighbor, the volcano Krakatoa, was prepared to devastate the landscape. Willem Beierink, the town controller, and his wife Johanna began the day by taking their three children which included the recently born Yanni, to attend the opening of a new market in Katimbang. It was Willem's duty to be seen at certain local ceremonies. It was, no doubt, an occasion that taxed their delicate Dutch sensibilities. According to Simon Winchester, the festival featured the ritual slaughter of a baby buffalo. But if that was somewhat gruesome, there was enough music and dancing to distract the faint of heart. Locals tapped away with mallets on gleaming, tinkling metallophones, while others pounded away on drums. Flutes, bowed instruments, and singing abounded. The children giggled, Willem smiled. But Johanna was anxious, though she couldn't put her finger on it. She was having trouble shaking the words of a local wise woman who told her that the hens were not laying eggs and the other birds had migrated north. These were bad omens, she claimed. Even the locals didn't seem to heed these warnings. They were too busy paying attention to the politics of the island. On the northern coast, the Aceh War was recently rekindled, a decades-long conflict between the British, Dutch, and Sultan of that region. The constant rebellion in Aceh meant that the colonizers had very little control over that portion of Sumatra. Residents of Katimbong were inspired by this. Perhaps now was the time for a rebellion of their own. Few would want to evacuate when the time seemed so ripe to finally throw off colonial rule. Of course, for many, mobility just wasn't possible. They lacked the money to book passage on a boat or to buy equipment for a hike through the hills. 
many locals worked as servants to the Dutch, and so were rarely permitted to stray far from their household duties. These political factors led the human population of the area to ignore the warning signs. The volcano was set to erupt. Now, on this clear Sunday morning, they would finally learn how wrong they had been. Hundreds of miles beneath the ocean, the tectonic plates continued to force magma to the surface. Inside Krakatoa's caldera, this fiery buildup reached its breaking point. All of the congealed magma and rock and ash was no longer enough to contain what laid below. It was time. The god's mouth ripped open. After 200 years of waiting, it had much to say. It spewed 20 million tons of sulfur into the atmosphere within seconds. Seismic instruments across the globe registered the blast at 20,000 kilotons, the force of a thousand atomic bombs. Two of the three funnels, Perbuaton and Donon, were instantly blown apart. They crumbled and fell into the ocean. As the clear blue sky was slowly eclipsed by the growing plume, a 40-foot wave surged out from the shores of the volcano heading toward the islands. Back in Katimbang, the ceremony continued on as the market officially opened. Johanna kept watch of her children, finally beginning to enjoy herself. The revelry at the market was put to an abrupt end as, without warning, the ground shook and the sky cracked as an enormous shockwave emanated from Krakatoa. The tremor they were used to, but the sound was surprising. It likely registered far beyond 120 decibels, louder than thunder. However, Krakatoa had even more ear-shattering sounds in store. Out in the strait, a million cubic tons of ash and pumice continued to be ejected into the air every second. The plume rose to 30 feet and traveled further across the water. The tsunami was still gathering steam. The citizens of Katimbang had no idea it was coming. The smell of sulfur permeated the area. The waves rocked back and forth in no discernible pattern. Those with a view of the volcano could actually see the shock wave as it traveled over the water and onto the islands. Inhabitants covered their ears, crouched down, and clutched their children as the ground shook for the next 10 minutes. Once the shaking did cease, Johanna made sure that her children were safe, then reached out for Willem. She begged him to leave now and take them all to their cottage in the hills. She didn't know anything about volcanoes, but she knew that this latest eruption was worse than ever before. And yet, Willem deluded himself. He didn't want to risk leaving Katimbang. He felt that this would show weakness, that local rebels might use his departure as an opportunity to retake the colony, including the new market. Johanna wrote in her journal that Willem long feared that the rebel elements in central Sumatra would one day inspire the Sumatrans of the southern coast to seek their own independence. 
he failed to realize that there would very soon be no southern coast left at all. So instead of evacuating, he ordered Johanna, the children, and the servants back up to the house while he and his clerk, Mr. Tojika, tended to the colony. Johanna looked out to Krakatoa, which seemed to taunt her. Its remaining funnel sent black smoke into the atmosphere as waves crashed around and lightning danced through the sky. Gathering her children, they headed back up the hill to the house. Out on the strait, Captain Lindemann of the Governor General Loudon had a better view of the action than perhaps any other inhabitants of the area. He was a mixture of brave, greedy, and suicidal. Lindemann had recently begun a side business ferrying interested Dutch residents to Krakatoa's shores for portrait opportunities. They used newfangled gelatin dry plate cameras or older collodion wet plate cameras. The crew had been well on their way to Telak Betong, west of Katimbang, when the eruption occurred. They were no more than 10 miles from the volcano. It was all they could do to keep the ship afloat as they adjusted course and tried to make for the safety of Katimbang, about 40 miles away. Lindemann ordered all the passengers to the hull while the sailors struggled to stay on their feet on deck. The captain needed them to shovel ash and pumice off the deck, or otherwise they would become too heavy and sink. The men were struck in the head with falling pumice, and their hands were burned as the sticky ash clung to their fingers. As the water became choppier, some slipped and nearly fell overboard. They needed to make it to port, and fast. Back on the shore, Willem watched as the Loudon approached the Katimbong dock around 2 p.m. He clenched his jaw with worry as he realized the water was far too turbulent for the crew to safely disembark. The view from his vantage point on the beach was truly apocalyptic. One half of the sky was still bright with the afternoon sun, while the black cloud of Krakatoa was slowly approaching from the south. The ocean was the most disturbing. One moment, massive waves came crashing to shore. The next moment, the waves literally changed direction and crashed against each other. It was as if the ocean were a wash basin being shaken by a child. Over at the dock, the Loudon was being pushed and pulled away from the land. Oftentimes, the waves came up over the dock itself, threatening to wash the entire boat into port. On board, Lindemann reached the grim conclusion that the safest thing to do was to go back out to sea. Otherwise, they would be violently tossed into the jungle, and even if the boat managed to stay intact, everyone aboard would likely be killed in the tumult. He turned to his men, who were already bruised and burnt, and told them that if they wanted to live, they would need to go through hell. As Willem watched the boat turn away from the shore, he realized that Johanna had been right about wanting to make for the hills. He ordered a servant to run up to the house and tell them to prepare to leave. The sun went down around 6 p.m. Not that anyone could tell, the sky was now almost completely black. 
That night, Johanna sat and ate dinner with her children, Peter and Wilhelmina, ages three and five, respectively. They had all recently washed and had dressed in travel apparel. Any other night, it would have been nearly time for bed. But Johanna knew that soon they would be hiking through the dark forest, trying to outrun the fury of Krakatoa. Johanna frowned as a curious noise began emanating from above them. She excused herself, lifting her dress and heading up the stairs to her bedroom. Grabbing a lamp, she moved through the pitch-black darkness to the balcony doors, which she thrust open. It was barely any brighter outside. The stars and the moon were nowhere in sight. But using the lamplight, Johanna could just make out a continuous volley of pumice raining down on the household. The dark cloud of Krakatoa had reached their home. Quickly moving back downstairs, Johanna gathered the children and brought them up to the bedroom. She had a nursemaid bring Yanni in as well. The nurse played with the energetic young Peter while she sat on the couch and fed the baby. Wilhelmina kept to herself, perhaps sensing the danger. They sat like that for over an hour, unsure of what to do next. Willem was down the hill in his office, apparently preparing the colony for evacuation. Johanna went back out to her balcony, where she saw the pumice was still raining down in pea-sized chunks. Suddenly, a single light pierced the darkness, a small lamp bobbing up and down the path leading up to the house. Thinking that it was perhaps Willem returning to finally take them to the hills, she raced downstairs to the front door. When she opened it, she found not Willem, but Jeremoide, one of the family servants. His face was pale, though it was dotted with black marks from where the pumice had hit him. Coming inside, he quickly explained that he had just been down by the beach, helping to secure homes, when the sea disappeared. The sea has gone, he kept repeating. Johanna thought perhaps some meaning was being lost through his poor mastery of Dutch. She assumed he meant that the tide was continuing to behave irregularly. But then, a whole flurry of lanterns appeared in the darkness behind him, and before long, Johanna was host to dozens of locals who reported the same thing. The sea had receded into the darkness until it disappeared. Fish flopped on the sand. Coral reefs that had previously been entirely submerged were now drying out in the warm, ashy air. The colonists and the locals had little experience with tsunamis and so were unaware of what was about to happen. As the tsunami neared the shore, it entered the shoaling phase in which it slows down, subsuming the ocean waves into its bulk. The tsunami thus gained height and was now ready to strike. Willem's office was closer to the beach than the house, so he became aware of it first. Despite the pumice falling and the locals shouting, he detected a faint roar at the edge of his hearing. Opening the door to his office, he stepped out onto the porch with Mr. Tojika. They squinted through the darkness toward the horizon. The roar became deafening as the massive wave came into view. It was as if the sky were moving, 
crashing down on them. In place of the sky and the stars, there was only black, foaming water. All experienced immense dread as they realized they could never outrun such a thing. As it hit land, beginning with the beach, the air was filled with the anguished cries of those caught in its path. It smashed into the beach, instantly killing any who were too close. It toppled huts, sent boats flying in the air, and spread up the hill with ease. Willem and Tojika had just enough time to look to one another and make for the safety of a nearby coconut tree. Back at the house, Johanna continued to sit in her bedroom with the children and the maid. Just as with Willem, she suddenly sensed the subtle roar of the approaching wave. The hair on her arm stood up. She knew she had to act quickly. She jumped up, clutching Yanni tightly. She called to the others, Come here, come here, everyone together. She led them up and onto the bed, where they huddled together, bracing themselves for the encroaching wave. The roar became deafening. Trees splintered outside. The tsunami was upon them. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. Next week, we'll follow the inhabitants of the Sunda Strait as they attempt to survive not one, but four more major eruptions from Krakatoa. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Liebeskind, Carly Madden, and Maggie Admire. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Greg Castro and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 